Good to see you. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for this uh, opportunity. We have to gather around your word and the freedom we have to open it and to study it. We thank you for the priesthood of all believers and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that uh, gives us understanding of your truth. Would you pray that as we come to your word this morning and as we study the history of how it has been interpreted over the years, we pray that you would challenge us, Lord, with both the uh, proper means of interpreting your word and also the caution us against the errors that have been committed. Uh, protect your church from error, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, when studying how to correctly interpret the Bible, it becomes worth examining a history of biblical hermeneutics. The so last time I taught this course, I did do somewhat of a brief overview of history, and I think it's important. I think it's worth looking at for several reasons. So in your outline, I have several of those. What does history teach us about hermeneutics? Well, the benefits of surveying a history of hermeneutics are that history first illustrates the importance of proper Bible interpretation. Okay, so surveying the impact of different approaches to Scripture at least can show us that a right hermeneutic makes a dramatic difference. And it illustrates for us that the interpretations we're making today will determine the condition of the church for tomorrow. It's very important. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. Secondly, we could say that history cautions us against errors previously committed. The Spanish philosopher and writer George Santayana once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yes. And so one thing we don't learn from history is that we don't learn from history, but we need to learn from history. We should be wise by examining how many have really slipped into many pitfalls through the years. And so there can be value gained in learning from the mistakes of others, even when it comes to biblical hermeneutics. Thirdly, history demonstrates the delicate balance between truth and error. History tells a story, really, of Action and reaction. And when it comes to the history of interpreting the Bible, it's invaluable to see how the, really the, the reaction of one extreme can lead to an equal opposite reaction in the other extreme. I think we all know this. Truth is narrow, right? Isn't truth narrow? And because of that, many people through history, even well-meaning people, tend to fall to one side or the other. And so we want to be careful. We want to be balanced. And history can inform us and help us be balanced on truth to the extremes of error. But we could also say history balances our esteem for any Bible teacher. A lot could be said about this, but we must be wary of following any Bible teacher that we really respect or admire only to the extent that they follow Christ. Paul said of himself to the, uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me even as I follow Christ. And what history does for us is maybe, for instance, just think of the Reformers. You'll find some guys who are really fond of the Reformers, whatever John Calvin was about, Martin Luther, whatever. But you know what history shows us is those men had blind spots. They had issues too. And so history humbles us. It really puts into perspective our need to be honest and to be tempered by honest, critical, humble examination. There was a... Professor of Biblical Hebrew and Old Testament exegesis and theology, Milton S. Terry, he's the one who basically wrote the, uh, the hermeneutics 
textbook that was used for most of the 20th century, and he's had this to say about the history of biblical interpretation. A knowledge of the history of biblical interpretation is of inestimable value to the student of the Holy Scriptures. It serves to guard against errors and exhibits the activity and efforts of the human mind in search after truth and in relation to the noblest themes. It shows what influences have led to the misunderstanding of God's word and how acute minds carried away by misconception of the nature of the Bible have sought mystic and manifold meanings of its contents. So I want us to kind of see what Terry was talking about there in a brief history of hermeneutics. And we're going to look at seven periods of time, seven periods of time that we're going to break this history down into. The first I'm calling the Hebrew period. 445 B.C. roughly to A.D. 30. You might say 1445 B.C. all the way back to Moses. But we start with 445 many cases in a history of hermeneutics because that is where Ezra the scribe begins. So go to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to look at our Ezra, Ezra the scribe. And... Ezra has come back with many of God's people from Babylon now. They've long had opportunities to return to their homeland, and they're in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem. But this time away from Jerusalem has created a language gap. Remember we discussed that last week, this language gap that exists, because many people don't know the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and so we have a language gap in understanding the scriptures. Well, that was happening in the time of Ezra. The reason is that God's people, many of them for 70 years, having been raised in Babylon, were not aware of Hebrew now. They spoke Aramaic. And so we read in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, Ezra has all these scribes reading from the book. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That is God's people overcoming the language gap by translating the word of God from Hebrew into Aramaic and then explanation being given. That's what we're doing today. So this is a great text to see hermeneutics happening even at the very close of the Old Testament. But unfortunately, we see God's people getting away from approaching the Bible and simply saying, what does it say? and looking at the text, and allowing the text to speak to them. And we will see God's people, and even those in the world who are not God's people, approaching the Bible in all kinds of different ways that deprive the Bible of its authority to speak to our lives. And one of the ways this began subtly within the Hebrew community was letterism. Now the Jews, their scribes, copied the Old Testament very meticulously. And if you understand how the for instance, the Masoretic scribes copied the Old Testament manuscripts. You understand that they counted each and every letter. And, you know, every time they wrote the name of God, the scribe had to take a bath. I mean, they took very seriously copying the Word of God. So, because Hebrew letters have a numerical value, each of them, in the alphabet, what happened is some rabbis began coming up with kind of a code book approach to the Bible. Anybody familiar with, uh, what is it called, the Bible Code? The Bible Code, ever heard of that? That's kind of a revival of this kind of approach in some way or another. It's, it's looking at how letters are separated or spread throughout the text. And, 
and approaching the Bible like it's some kind of a secret code. Well, that was happening here. And just to give you an illustration of that, in the school of Hillel, Rabbi Hillel was a, a rabbi who lived basically just a generation before Christ. And he was a very popular rabbi. He had a very popular school. And here's an example. From Genesis, Abraham's servant Eliezer, Rabbi Hillel broke down his name and saw it had the value of 318 in the Hebrew. And since Abraham had 318 servants, that the rabbis then interpreted this to mean Eliezer was equal to all the rest of Abraham's servants. You might say, wow, that's fascinating. But people get sucked into this. In Psalm 68, 20, the psalm has a numerical value of 903. And so, because it's talking about issues of death and such, then these rabbis, using this approach of letterism to scripture, concluded there is 903 ways of dying. See, that's not what the text is telling you, but that that was uh, letterism. and, And there's all kinds of strange ideas that you could get out of that. So, the Jewish regard for letterism helps us understand a decline, a proper Bible interpretation, so that we wonder how it is, as we saw last week, the Ethiopian eunuch can arrive at the temple in Jerusalem in the first century and he could come away disillusioned and not hearing an explanation of the word of God. Why? Well, even the Pharisees, the leaders of the leaders, right? They were blind. They were the blind leading the blind. How did that happen? Where did that get off? Well, they weren't approaching the Bible the way they should have. And I just want to mention this. I know this is really a course that we're dealing with interpretation of the Bible, but it's worth pointing out some of what was going on in ancient Greece during the, the, the centuries before Christ. Because the Greeks were the ones who really began to emphasize the need for allegorism. That was approaching the Bible with the search of some kind of deeper, hidden meaning behind the text. Looking for the text behind the text. And this is why. Because of the ancient writings of Homer and Hesiod in the 9th and, and 8th centuries BC, they were just... These were an embarrassment to the, to the Greeks. I think, Abigail, you kind of looked at some of those. You probably understand why. Now, when you read the Odyssey, that some of these things would be embarrassing to some of these very astute Greek philosophers. And they said, well, we can't take all that literally. That didn't really happen. And so what they said is, there's really some kind of hidden meaning beneath the text. They wanted to interpret Homer and Hesiod and their, their forefathers by allegory. And when Alexander the Great conquered the ancient world, he didn't just conquer the world for Greece, but he spread Greek influence. So why am I even talking about Greece? Because this approach to Greek thinking, even interpreting texts by allegory, was something that the Greeks spread even to the Jews. They spread it across the Mediterranean world. And this is a process called Hellenization, right? To Hellenize is to make someone Greek or think like the Greeks, and uh, or make Greek in character. And so what we have happening is the Jews began an allegorical approach to their texts. This happened namely through a man named Philo, a Jewish philosopher, who became an apologist to the Greeks and wanted to teach them that, oh yeah, the Hebrews have the true way of God, and he was using his allegorical method as an apologetic, uh, basically to explain away things in Scripture that he didn't find so believable. He could just say, well, that's an allegory. Yes? Nope, which is one. First period is a Hebrew period. And by the way, Matthew's like, why is this guy, he saw this, he said, why is this guy holding a phone? I said, what? Holding a phone? Oh, that's not a phone, that's a book. 
Okay, that's a culture gap. <laughs> that's the technological gap. Uh, that's Philo there. And so Philo believed, he, he, th- he said, just like there's a body and a soul, he said every text has two meanings. There's a literal and there's a spiritual, allegorical, or deeper meaning. So it's just important to remember that because when we get to the second period here, the apostolic period, which is the time when the New Testament was written, this is going to play into a lot of the cults and different approaches to Scripture at the time. The apostolic period is roughly 8030 to 8100, the time when the apostles themselves were living and ministering. And how the Old Testament writers approach the Old Testament really is an important question when we come to hermeneutics. So I want to leave you with two basic things from this period I think you should know. First of all, Jesus interpreted the Old Testament literally. That means he, he went to the scriptures and he took it at face value. Uh, there's, uh, we could talk a lot about this, but I'm going to say basically Jesus consistently treats the Old Testament narratives at their face value and uh, as straightforward records of fact. His allusions to Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David are all intended to be understood as actual historical people and events. And Jesus showed no tendency to divide scriptural truth in levels of superficial and or deeper meaning. He denounced the casuistic methods that the rulers of his time were using. And if you listen to some of our studies in Mark, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, we discussed that, Mark 7, 6 through 13. Jesus also is never challenged by his opponents regarding his interpretation of Scripture. That silence is deafening. It's not Jesus' interpretation they have a problem. They do have a problem with some of his applications. But Jesus' interpretation of Scripture was indisputably plain and clear to all. Now, in most cases, the apostles interpreted Scripture literally too. And there are examples I could give you of that. But I will say this. (laughs) I said in most cases, right, because there are texts in Scripture where we read the apostles and their interpretation of the Old Testament, and it kind of makes us scratch our head and ask, What's going on here, right? I want to give you an example. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15. And uh, sometimes the, the apostles appear to maybe loosely apply Old Testament texts to their contemporary situation. We have to ask why. So listen what's going on here. This is the right after the Christmas story you're very familiar with. Herod wants to kill Jesus, and so an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream... And said, verse 13, Matthew 2, 13, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill all that had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then here's the quotations from Hosea 11.1 in relation to Jesus. He says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. All right. Now, if you study Hosea 11.1, you're going to see God's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, and how he, he brought them out of Egypt. You know that story in Exodus and all, brought them out of slavery. So the question is, what is going on here? Does Matthew actually think that Hosea had Jesus in mind, or was Matthew mistaken, or what's going on? Is Matthew trying to reinterpret Hosea? Some have said that this text, for instance, proves that we can see, we have the, the right and the responsibility to see and look for an allegorical meaning behind the text, the, the text behind the text. 
And so that every detail in the Bible is really about Jesus. I think you heard that. I would agree that all the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. I don't disagree with that. But all the Bible is not directly about Jesus. If you're going to tell me that every little detail in Scripture is really some kind of secret meaning about Jesus Christ, you can come up with any teaching you want. And uh, I believe Matthew 2, 13 through 15 is one case where we see the nation of Israel, if we study the context there, being identified as a type that is a pattern of God's ultimate Israel, Israel par excellence. Israel means prince of God, right? That's Jesus Christ. And so what's happening here is if we allow for a broader fulfillment language, Matthew uses the word fulfill, but if we allow for a broader fulfillment language, it explains how New Testament writers could cite an Old Testament text as fulfilled in Christ without at the same time claiming these texts were direct predictions. He's not saying Hosea was directly predicting Jesus would come out of Egypt. He's saying it's a pattern, it's a type of what happened to Israel, it's happening to Jesus. And that's not a coincidence, that's a proof of the sovereignty of God. So the New Testament writers were so familiar with the Old Testament that what it is we see them doing is often using the Old Testament as a mode of expression. They'll often use it as an illustration without necessarily trying to give us the meaning of that text. So all that I'm trying to say, and I'm trying to condense this, this definitely deserves its own lecture, but um, I just want to condense this point to say the apostles, it's safe to say, also interpreted the scripture literally, like Jesus. But there are times where we see they understood types and patterns, illustrations from the Old Testament. And so we'll discuss this more later when we get to what's called the literal principle of interpretation. But for now, just understand Jesus, the apostles, are not doing what the Greeks and the Jewish allegorists are doing. Looking beneath the text, looking above the text, looking through the text for some kind of special hidden meaning. All right, and, and again, we'll talk about how, do, how does that deal with typological prophecy and stuff like that. If you have questions about that, we'll get to that when we get through the uh, literal principle of hermeneutics. So here's a next period of history that we're concerned with, and that's called the patristic period from roughly AD 100 to AD 590. And when we talk about the patristic period, we're talking about the patriarchs, the fathers, the church fathers, those that were at least chronologically influential in starting uh, God using them to start the church. By the mid-2nd century, there would be two schools of interpretative thought that would emerge. And this is important to note. The first is the Alexandrian school from Alexandria in Egypt in the West. Uh, this would kind of become a precedent for the Western church and they would emphasize an allegorical approach to interpreting the Bible, which meant, again, they were very interested in this Greek dualistic way of looking at the text. Sure, literal meaning, whatever, but there's some kind of spiritual hidden meaning behind all that God's saying in his word. And then there was the Antiochian school, or if you will, the, the school of Antioch. Antioch of Syria, which was in the eastern part of the empire. And this was another school of approach to the Bible that emphasized a literal approach to interpretation. And there were some in this school that said, for instance, well, the Song of Solomon, which us Christians, if you read the Song of Solomon, you know, there's, it's poetry. And as a Christian, New Testament Christian, we're reading that, we're saying, oh, there's got to be some correlation to our relationship with Jesus, right? Well, the, the literal school at Antioch, you had guys there saying, nope, it's just purely Solomon's love letter to his Egyptian wife, when he married her. And so uh, you could even see two extremes coming here. But that's the two schools of thought 
that we see in this early church. And I will just say that in the early period as well, you have guys like uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen, Augustine. These were big names in the early church from this Alexandrian school of thought. And they were all about Greek philosophy. If you read these guys, I mean, you'll get the idea that on equal par with the Old Testament is Plato. <laughs> Pretty much. Yes, question. What does the word casuistic mean? Casuistic is the idea, if you study law, it's the idea of case law. So if you, for instance, if you listen to that message in Mark 7, where the Pharisees are troubling Jesus over his disciples, not washing their hands and stuff. They had all kinds of laws they created in certain, for certain cases, but they're not biblical laws. They're kind of silly. Even like how far could you walk on the Sabbath day, those kind of things. So they don't have a biblical basis. It was based in Jewish case law. The, the main thing to know is that by the time of Christ, there's a shift away from what does the text simply say, and there's all these oral traditions that the, you know, the thinkers of that time, whether Pharisees, Sadducees, had added to the law, and that's a problem. That's going to happen again centuries later in the Roman Catholic Church. So history does repeat itself, doesn't it? All right, I was saying about Origen, Augustine, you have these different fathers. If you read them, it's like, what on earth? I remember reading something from Augustine on music. It was interesting, and just how he's, he goes back to this, he has an interesting way of appealing to Greek thought. And there's reasons for that. But that will affect their approach to the Bible. And rather than just simply looking at the text and saying, what does it say? And I'm not saying everything Augustine said was wrong. I, I like a lot of his teaching. But then there's other things he said that were, were just whacked out because of this allegorical approach. And you get to this guy in the late 4th, uh, early 5th century, John Cassian, who eventually tells us actually every passage of scripture has a fourfold meaning. It's not twofold meaning. Actually, Origen said there's threefold meaning correlating to body, soul, spirit. But now John Cassian said, well, every passage of scripture has a historical, allegorical, moral, and analogical meaning. And this as an, is an example. He said Jerusalem, when you see Jerusalem in the Bible, it means four things. The city of the Jews, that's the literal meaning, right? The church of Christ, that's this allegorical meaning. Then the human soul, and fourthly, it also means the heavenly city. This would be, this fourfold scheme would be the official practice of the Roman Catholic Church that they would adopt. So let me just ask you, can you see how this would open the door to maybe some doctrinal problems? When you can approach the Bible, you can approach a text, and you've got fourfold meaning there? Wow. Suddenly, you just open the door, like open Pandora's box to a lot of subjectivity. And, and rather than the text controlling doctrine and what we believe, now that's really up to the creativity of the interpreter. So remember, hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible, what? Interpretation. Not the art and science of Bible, imagination. It's not about your imagination and how creative you can be with the text. It's about what does the text actually say. We're trying to draw out of the text what's there, not bring to the text whatever is in our minds. So this is, this is going to be a, uh, a pattern we see. Two different schools of thought, allegorical, literal, and we see that even in the early church. Let's go to the fourth period of time. This is the medieval period, which I'm 
staking out is roughly 590 to 1517. By the way, 590 is the date I put there because that's the date when Pope Gregory I, who is, according to some Protestants, you know, the first Roman Catholic Pope, that's when he comes to office. And Gregory was, a, was an extensive allegorist. He, he said this of the book of Job. Gregory taught that Job's three friends represent three heretics, uh, and his seven sons represent the 12 apostles. His 7,000 sheep are innocent thoughts. His 3,000 camels are vain notions. His 500 pair of oxen are virtues. His 500 donkeys are lustful inclinations. I mean, can you, can you see how subjective that is? You, you could come up and disagree and say they mean something totally different. And who's to say who's right? Who's to arbitrate? And you had guys in the Middle Ages, like Rabbi Rashi, who was a Jewish rabbi and scholar, who actually advocated, hey, we should get back to a literal approach to interpretation. That was good, right? But some of the bigger voices, like Thomas Aquinas, if you know that name, and uh, if, if this was a, a course in church history or a philosophy of, of Christian thought or something like that, then we would spend a lot of time talking about him. He had a major, major impact on medieval thought. But Aquinas understood that the literal meaning of Scripture was basic, but there were other senses built on it. And so he was part of this thinking too. And there were some dissenting voices within the church. Does anybody know the name John Wycliffe? <laughs> yeah, you've got to know the name John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a man of God who is called the morning star of the Reformation. And there's a reason for that. Because Wycliffe had this idea, he stressed the grammatical, historical meaning of Scripture. He said, we need to let the Bible speak for itself. Just look at the text. In fact, w- Wycliffe proposed several rules of interpretation. Obtain a reliable text, he said. Understand Scripture's logic. Compare parts of Scripture with each other. And maintain a humble-seeking attitude so that the Holy Spirit can instruct. Wycliffe said this, All things necessary in Scripture are contained in its proper literal historical senses. He's saying, you want to know the proper meaning of Scripture? You can get it from the basic meaning. You don't need a priest to tell you. You don't need a priest to go digging and give you something secret. But there are reasons that the medieval period was the medieval period. There are reasons that in the Middle Ages, for this basically thousand-year period, you have a dark age of scriptures. Have you ever wondered that? A dark age of, of spiritual knowledge. And I, that's not to say that everything that happened in the Middle Ages was all primitive and everything. That, that's a caricature. But there, there was a great dearth of biblical exposition. And so let me give you some reasons for that. Uh, first of all, there was a gen- general ignorance of Scripture. That's plain if you just read the literature. Guys will go again to some of the writings, even as the writings of Aristotle were being uh, discovered and stuff, and scholasticism was on the rise. There's a great esteem accorded to these ancient philosophers, but what about the writings of Scripture? There's a widespread illiteracy. Most people just didn't read, period. And uh, Reading and literacy was kind of limited to the church. And if you were in the monasteries, that's where uh, literacy was preserved. There wasn't a school, real strong school system, anything like that. Unless you were a lawyer, unless you were a man of the cloth, you couldn't read. And so that's a problem. Why is literacy so important? Because people need to read the Bible for themselves. There was also a limited access to Scripture. Possession of the Scriptures was basically limited to clergymen and monastic orders 
and low literacy rates combined with the, with the scriptures being limited to the church, you know, Bibles chained to the pulpit, that kind of thing, that's not good for the general public. There was also a controlled interpretation of the scripture. And what do we mean by that? Well, basically, if you were going to dissent from what was the established official reading of Holy Mother Church, quotation marks, you were a heretic. And you might just end up like John Huss, who was burned at the stake for his faith. So they had a controlled interpretation on Scripture, just like cults like to do today. They don't want people thinking for themselves. They want to think for you. And then there's a un, there was an unrestrained love for sin, which is really the case in any age that we find. Sinners love sin. That's ultimately at the root of it, isn't it? Why was there a dearth of truth? Because people didn't want the truth. We, have, we recognize that. But God was at work, and... And that would bring us to the Reformation period. By God's grace, we come to the Reformation period, number five. And I have this marked by the years 1517 to 1600. And the Reformation was essentially a reformation of biblical hermeneutics. The Reformation was essentially a reformation of biblical hermeneutics. That is when interpreters came to the Bible, Christian or non-Christian, whatever, and they came to the Bible and just simply said, let's read the text for what it says. There was a great awakening. It's a great awakening we know as the Reformation. What factors contributed to this revival of literal Bible interpretation? Let me give you some things here. First of all, disillusionment with papal corruption and abuse of power. So after several centuries of popes buying their office and basically the papacy being a brothel. It was, you know, there's a lot of scandals in the history of the Roman Catholic papacy, right? And eventually this stuff just got out and the Roman Catholic church couldn't cover it up. That's what we see. That's the soil of Germany in the 16th century. That's why it's not just people like Martin Luther who have a spiritual reason to turn to the text and turn to God, but you have politicians who simply want freedom from the yoke of this Roman Catholic abuse of power. So that's going on. There's also the printing press. Gutenberg met the printing press 1455. So with that would come the rise of literacy. People can now actually read for themselves. Knowledge is power, right? The church can't keep people ignorant. And then you have voices crying in the wilderness. By that I mean there were people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, voices that God raised up, preachers that would preach the word of God. And ultimately, we must concede that uh, without the gracious breath of God's spirit, there never would have been a reformation. Reformation is ultimately the work of God's grace. So Martin Luther is, is the name that really we kind, of, we kind of go to in the reformation because the Lord would use him you know, we think about that 1517 is when he's nailing the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Church. But I hope we understand, it wasn't like the movement was all around one man. There were many figures, there were many people, men and women that God was working in, bringing them to a truth of Scripture. But here's what I will say about Martin Luther as regards hermeneutics. Luther rejected the allegorical approach of the Roman Catholic Church to Scripture. He actually called the allegorical approach to the Bible as monkey dribble, okay? And, and actually, if you read Martin Luther, he, he, is, he is very sarcastic. He had quite a wit. He had a biting tongue. So he had a lot of things to say about the Roman Catholic Church, and he didn't think much of their approach to interpreting the Bible. He saw it as a way of controlling what the text actually meant. 
because they could say, well, that's the literal meaning, but here's the fourfold. You've got to understand the fourfold spiritual meaning, right? Uh, Luther also emphasized the original languages. You have texts now through the Renaissance being published in Greek and in Hebrew, and so scholars can go, like Erasmus, who's a Roman Catholic, he can go to that text and make it available to people. People can look for themselves and see, whoa, we're crossing the language gap here. And Luther emphasized that. Let's go to the original languages. He emphasized the clarity of Scripture. He was convinced that Scripture was not essentially ambiguous for some kind of priest, but that anyone, even a layman, could understand the Scriptures in its basic forms. What you must know, you can know, if you simply have access to the Word of God. Luther also emphasized the sole authority of Scripture, that Scripture stands above tradition and well, the magisterium, our church councils and such, which so often contradict themselves. John Calvin is another uh, theologian of the Reformation period worth noting, and I will just say this about Calvin. Calvin was a great expositor in his time. And, and we know that because his commentaries are still worth reading, which is amazing. This is over 500 years old, and you could read this guy, or not quite that old, but you can, you can read John Calvin and see that that he took a solid approach, an expositional approach to Scripture. That is a literal approach. Look at the text. What does the text say? Let's explain the meaning of the text and draw from the text what's already there. That's important. He called Catholicism's allegorization of Scripture the contrivance of Satan. William Tyndale was an English scholar. He taught that Scripture has but one sense, which is the literal sense. And that flatly contradicted what the church has been teaching, the Roman Catholic Church. For centuries. So you see the, the war here between the approach to interpreting the Bible is very important. It has everything to do with are these people going to be under the domination of the Roman Catholic priest, just do whatever he says, or are they going to look at the Bible themselves and be freed by the truth? It has everything to do with how we approach the scripture. The Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic pushback to the Reformation. We call it the Counter-Reformation. And they basically said this in their session. This is how they responded. They said, no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith or of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the sacred scripture contrary to that sense, which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of scriptures, hath held and doth hold, even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers. Well, I know that's a, and, and by the way, I skipped some things in there too. This is a long, wordy sentences, right? But they were saying, how dare you presume to take it upon yourself to interpret the Bible against what Holy Mother Church says. Well, they, by Holy Mother Church, they meant their system, the papacy, the way they've interpreted and controlled the scriptures for centuries. All right, let's go to now the post-Reformation period. These are the years roughly 1600 to 1800. And following the Reformation, we have really an action and reaction here. The church saw it necessary to, to articulate what we believe from the Bible. It wasn't enough to say, I just believe the Bible. I hope you're not one of those Christians who just says, when people ask you, what do you believe? I just believe the Bible. Well, what is that? What do you believe from the Bible? Anything in the Bible says that I believe it. You realize that Roman Catholics can tell you the same thing. Anybody, Jehovah's Witnesses can tell you the same thing. You know, even Muslims will tell you, well, we believe the Gospels. We just don't believe the epistles. Are. You have to be able to explain what you mean. And so this is where creeds and confessions do become necessary. 
I could say a lot about this, but I'm just going to say that the, the period of the 16th, 17th centuries in the post-Reformation is really characterized by a number of creeds. Maybe you can think of some of them. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, Second London Baptist Confession. There are a number of confessions that come out of this period, and it's Christians who say we need to articulate clearly how we understand the scriptures. And what you'll see in these, these confessions is all these citations of scriptures. And they weren't like based on some allegorical approach to scripture. It was based on what does the text plainly say so that anybody could go to the text and check it for themselves. That's awesome. But there was a reaction to this because, as you can imagine, and in these situations where you have the people belonging to their state churches, being baptized in their churches, and they're simply confessing these creeds, you can imagine that a lot of these folks who belong to these state churches weren't legitimate. Their faith wasn't real. All it was is they went to the Protestant church. They went to the Lutheran church or whatever, okay? So there was a reaction, and rightly so, among those who we call the pietists. This was a movement that was a reaction to confessionalism and rationalism, some of the Enlightenment stuff that started to happen at this time. And some of the notable pietists were the Moravians. Ever heard of them? They were greatly used in missions. They were very much about missions. God mightily used them. And John Wesley, he was a pietist of sorts, greatly influenced by Moravian devotion. So here's the contributions of the pietists. The pietists positively were reacting to just dead, cold confessionalism. You could claim to be a follower of Jesus. You can claim to believe all that. Westminster Catechism, whatever. How are you living? All right, there, there's an importance there. All right? We see an importance. Negatively, what happened with a lot of the pietists is that pietists sometimes encouraged a mystical approach to Scripture that bypassed a grammatical, historical approach or interpretation. What they were doing, without knowing it, many pietists, is opening the door to what's called subjectivism that we're going to see in just a moment. They opened the door, probably without meaning to. And uh, at this time, you, you can appreciate Christians, if you read some of the Puritans and those writing at this time, you can appreciate them when you know what's going on in the secular world. That from out of the Renaissance comes this enlightenment, so-called, where man is really replacing the revelation of God, divine revelation, as the sole authority of faith and practice And now man is, as they claim, returning to reason. It's human reason. And so Enlightenment rationalism is going to slowly uh, take over Western thought. And we see this, I'll just mention this, Rene Descartes is one great example, I think because he's a Roman Catholic who claimed to believe the Bible. But what does he do when he's he's trying to prove that we can have certainty? He's trying to combat skeptics of his time. He places certainty. He grounds certainty in his own thoughts. Really, it begins with his own doubt, right? And he says, because I doubt, therefore I'm thinking, you know, so I, I know I exist. And so rather than going to revelation again, you have man going to reason, and it won't stop there. David Hume, a Scottish skeptic of the 18th century, would come along, cast down on everything. And in reaction to him, you have Others, like Immanuel Kant, who claimed to be a Christian, saying, we gotta, we got to prove Christianity is true against these skeptics. And so what Kant did is he said, basically, we can't know what's upstairs. God or meaning or morals or values, we can't prove that, but we, we must live as though it is there. What Kant is saying is basically 
that we can't prove it by reason that God is morality, all that, but we must live as though he is. So there is an attic upstairs, and God and all that meaning, everything's up there, but you just have to take it by faith. And that sounded reasonable to a lot of people. What was the problem? Well, all, all it took was for others to come along and say, well, why believe there's anything upstairs at all in the attic? If it's only attained, if it's only accessed through a leap of faith. And so this will really set the way. It was the Enlightenment thinkers, and again, there's so much you could say here, but the Enlightenment thinkers that really set us up for what we would call the modern period now, and I'm just roughly demarcating that to 1800 to the present. And so the modern period is where we arrive. Just looking at the time here, a few minutes. We have naturalism and subjectivism leading us to liberalism. You can ask yourself today why it is that so many seminaries that used to preach the gospel, they used to preach clear doctrine, why they don't. That started not with professors waking up one day and saying, I no longer believe this, but the slow infiltration, the gradual infiltration of a lot of these enlightenment principles. And one of those principles, one of these movements, these isms that comes out of this modern period is naturalism. It's this idea of, again, why do I have to believe in the attic upstairs? Or if there is anything upstairs, if God is there, he doesn't have anything to do with this world. Well, that's, that's a movement called deism. A lot of our founding forefathers in this country were deists. And so you have men like Thomas Jefferson, who it's, you know, he went through his Bible, and he's cutting out anything that is miraculous, anything supernatural, because he's saying, we don't really believe this. Why? Because in his worldview, in his approach to the Bible, he says, if it's supernatural, it's not real. It's fake. It's fantasy. Because the deist, for the deist or the enlightenment thinker, they said the universe is a closed system and God, if he's there or whatever, can't enter into it. That's naturalism. Everything must be explained by a naturalistic basis, a materialistic basis. No room for God. So you can imagine what that does to the stories about miracles in the Bible. They said that was just made up. Then you have, in 1859, a guy named Charles Darwin publishes Origin of the Species. And it's like, for the first time, really, atheism now has some kind of an intellectual clout. They've actually got, in their estimation, some kind of a scientific basis for not believing in anything upstairs. They can say, look, we can prove it. Because man just evolved naturally. So there's a denial of the supernatural, there's a denial of Christ's deity, there's a rise of historical criticism. Maybe if you know the name Julius Wellhausen, who's a German scholar, who said, oh, look at the, the first five books of the Bible. Those were invented by uh, these four different authors. And it calls it the JEPD theory. They were invented by four different authors much later in time. They're not written by Moses. All this was an attack, a systemic attack on the historic Christian faith. And the problem is, there are many Christians like, I just believe the Bible because I feel it in my heart and everything. And they had no way of standing against this incredible tide that just swept the country, took over seminaries, took over churches. Naturalism would lead to this theological liberalism. But there's another factor here, and that is subjectivism I'm also mentioning. Subjectivism would also lead to liberalism. Naturalism and subjectivism. By subjectivism, we're talking about the idea that all truth is subjective, there is no absolute truth, and this would have a major impact on how people would interpret the Bible. We said a moment ago that in the, in the Enlightenment, you had some Enlightenment thinkers saying, you know, 
God, he's up there, but you just can't prove it. You can't really know it. You just feel it. Frederick Schleiermacher was a, a theologian, very much a liberal philosopher, and he taught that religion is the feeling of the heart. Feeling of the heart. That sounds so good, doesn't it? He came from a pietistic background. Well, you see where this becomes a problem? What happens to absolute, the absolute truths of Scripture? Oh, that's not really important now. What's important is how, how you feel, how it impacts your life. Sounds really nice. Soren Kierkegaard was, a, uh, Kierkegaard was a Danish Christian. He reacted to a lot of the confessionalism in the state church. And, and he saw a lot of those who just confessed doctrinal creeds. They weren't changed by it. But Kierkegaard had the wrong solution. He said that, again, the only way we can know it's true is we have to just take a leap into the dark. You have to make a leap of faith. And because of that, he was undermining this doctrinal approach to God. This, for him, it was the true knowledge of God was apprehended by this leap. And many have considered him to be the first existentialist. What is existentialism? That's this idea that truth, reality, it's grounded in you. It's grounded in the way you feel. It's grounded in your thoughts, feelings, and actions. And how is this going to influence our approach to the Bible? It's going to be absolutely destructive. Reader response theory is how many who claim to be Christian can now um, hold to liberation theology, Christian communism, feminism, race-based theology. That all comes out of this subjectivism. Deconstructionism is a view that basically taught all discourse is self-revelatory. And so what is important is not what the author said, but what the reader feels from the text. And so what many have done, even in liberal secular universities, they've sought to scrub the Bible of its original historical meaning and just teach you, what do you feel from it? What's the artistic value of it? Like the Bible is just your subjective piece of artwork and you can make of it whatever you want. So the deconstructionist would say, who cares what the Bible originally meant? The greatest authority on the Bible is me. It's me. Everything in the Bible, all the truth, it's subjective to me. What I think, what I feel. Religion, just a feeling of the heart. This is all connected. And I, I don't have time to get into this, so what I'm going to do is next week we're going to begin looking at this. But I want to show you that this would lead to sensationalism, which branches off to cults and charismaticism. Because there are people rolling around in churches on the floor and, and, and speaking like babies, and they're going to tell you that's uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand, this had a precedent, and it's not in the book of Acts, but it was born out of an emphasis on this subjectivism. And so we'll have to look at some more of those things. I don't even have time for the quiz. So what I'm going to do is this. We're going to come back next week, and next week we're going to be looking at the qualifications of a good interpreter, which is important. And this next week will kind of be the last introductory session before we jump into hermeneutics proper and we look at some principles for how to interpret the Bible. But next week we're going to look at the qualifications of a good interpreter. And before we do that, we'll conclude this session. I don't have much more in history, but we'll also discuss the quiz and, and just try to think about some of those things that are important, okay? All right, let's pray.